A very warm welcome to the Word Live podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we're going back to 2018 and our Bible readings given that year by Mike Kane. They were on Nehemiah and they point us to the great building project that God is doing in his world. I hope you find your heart thrilled with excitement as you see what we're called to be part of. So, over to Mike. If I was making a film of the book of Nehemiah for Disney, I would definitely, definitely end my film at the end of chapter 12. (laughs) Chapters 1 to 6, you remember the walls get rebuilt. Chapters 7 to 12, the people get rebuilt. And you remember the rebuilding of the people all started as they opened up God's word and the living God spoke to their hearts. And you remember there was that deep conviction of sin as they saw what they had done. They saw that the distress they were in was because they had walked away from the God who loves them. There was that deep conviction of sin, but there was also that deep joy as they marveled at what our God is like, that he sees all our flaws yet goes on loving us. And in chapter 10, they recommit themselves to the Lord. They say, we are going to live the whole of our lives for you. And they get specific. They say, we're going to live our relationships for you. We're going to use our money for you. We're going to spend our time for you. Chapter 11, they repopulate the city. They get that Jerusalem is at the center of God's purposes to reach out to the world. So they move from the countryside to the city to build the city to the glory of God. And then in chapter 12, they celebrate. And there's this wonderful um, picture of two choirs marching round the top of the wall, but they each march in the opposite direction. One goes one way and one goes the other way, and they meet in the middle. And it's wonderful. And we read in chapter 12, verse 43, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. You think of all the nations living around Jerusalem thinking, these Israelites, they live the whole of their lives for their God. Oh, it must be so grim. And they hear this singing, this joy. Why? Why? Because their God has given them great joy. Because it's wonderful to be his people. It's wonderful to live the whole of our lives for him. That is the life we were made for. That is the life that Jesus would go on to call life in all its fullness. It's been an amazing journey. You look at what God has done in just a few weeks, in 52 days, they've rebuilt the wall and he has transformed his people. And I think this would be a great note to end on. And we could say they all lived happily ever after and we could all just go home. Wouldn't that be good? Trouble is, Nehemiah doesn't end at the end of chapter 12. There's chapter 13. And chapter 13 changes everything. 
chapter 13, verse 6. But while this was all going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Do you remember Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in the 20th year? After 12 years, he goes back to Susa. And then a few years later, he comes back to Jerusalem again to see how everyone's doing. And what does he find? Oh, the walls are still standing, but the people are in ruins. Why? Because the people who were shaped by the word have caved in to the world. And chapter 13 verses 1 to 5 is the kind of window on what's happened while Nehemiah was away. So we see in verses 1 to 3 that before Nehemiah had left, the people had been reading the book of Moses. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. In other words, they were reading Deuteronomy chapter 23 where it says that no Ammonite or no Moabite should be admitted into the assembly of God. Now, we need to be very careful that we don't mishear this. This is not racism. God's people are repeatedly called to welcome foreigners. If you're making notes, just jot down Leviticus 19, verse 34, or Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. Again and again, they are called to love those who are aliens, those who are foreigners. Think of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is all about Ruth, who is a Moabite. And she is welcomed in to the people of God. In fact, she is welcomed into the line of King David. So it's not about being unwelcoming, It's about being on their guard because the Moabites and the Ammonites were people who again and again set out to destroy the people of God. And the people of God were not to give their enemies a foothold in their life together. You are not to appoint a militant atheist as a home group leader in your church. But while Nehemiah is away, verse 4, before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah. Eliashib the priest is closely associated with Tobiah. That phrase, closely associated, means uh, in some kind of partnership, perhaps through marriage or business but in partnership together. But hold on, who is Tobiah? Well, he's an Ammonite. He's a member of the sworn enemy of God's people. And sure enough, back in chapter four, do you remember? What did Tobiah try to do? Do you remember? He plotted to fight against God's people. He was the guy who wanted to stir up trouble against Jerusalem. And a guy like this, is closely associated, is in some kind of partnership with one of the priests? Alarm bells are ringing. 
Because in the temple, there were storerooms where you, you kept everything you needed for temple worship. And Eliashib, see in verse five, gives this storeroom to Tobiah. He invites him into the very heart of their life together. And you see, verse seven, Nehemiah comes back and here I learned about the evil thing Elijah had done in providing Tobiah room in the courts of the house of God. Nehemiah sees this as an evil thing. Again, don't mishear this. We, we should welcome strangers into our midst. We should care for them, whatever their creed. But this is a guy who is out to destroy the people of God. And uh, we read back in chapter six, some of the other nobles were writing to Tobiah and we read, it says, they were under oath to him. In other words, they were also in kind of partnership with him. And it says they were wowed by what a really good guy he was. And now Nehemiah says, don't you see? Don't you see the influence he has over you? You're so busy trying to keep in with him, you have ended up compromising the life of worship. And Nehemiah's having none of it. Do you see in verse eight, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. He throws his furniture out. And verse nine, I gave orders to purify the rooms. And that is the point. Because Tobiah is a corrupting influence and the place needs to be purged of him. Because God's people were meant to be shaped by God's word. And what's happened is they have caved in to the world. And of course our friends and associates are mostly very reasonable they're good people. They're not seeking to ban the Christian faith. They're just saying that we should keep it to ourselves. We should keep it to Sundays. We should keep it small. They're just saying they don't want it in their schools because they don't want their children brainwashed. They're just saying they don't want it in your studies or in your politics. They're just saying you shouldn't bring it to work. And the Bible won't let us do that. Because the God of the Bible, the God of Nehemiah is, do you remember, the high God of heaven. The God who made the whole world. Who is working out his purposes for the whole world. And he calls us to live for him with the whole of our lives. If you are asking me to keep him to myself, to keep him to Sundays... It sounds like you're being fair, doesn't it? It sounds like you are being reasonable and you are tolerating me, but actually you are imposing your views on me. Because you might think religion is a kind of private spirituality, but the God of the Bible is the God over all. And if you ask me to keep him to Sundays, to keep him to myself, you are asking me to deny him. But we go along with it because uh, these people have influence over our career prospects, over whether I get selected, over what others think of me. 
So we don't want to lose our close associations with them. But they have such sway over us that instead of being shaped by the word, we cave in to the world. And while Nehemiah's been away, that's what's happened. And it comes out in three specific areas. And here is the, here is the killer. The very three areas in which they had resolved to devote themselves to the Lord, to live for him. First, in verses 10 to 14, we see that the people stop giving money to the life of the temple. Back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, the people had recommitted to giving money to the life of the temple, giving money and giving grain. They made a promise. They said, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord, the temple, is of course the symbol of God's presence with his people. It is at the very heart of his plans to to build up his people and reach out to the world. So to give to the temple symbolized giving your life to the purposes of God. Actually, the very fact that one of the storerooms was available for Tobiah was a sign that all was not well, that the giving is not coming in. And sure enough, by the time Nehemiah returns, do you see verse 10? I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. See, the, the, the Levites worked in the temple, but they had to go back to work in their own fields because they had to go back to growing their own grain because people were not giving to support their ministry because the world around them was saying, well, why, why, would, you, why would you give your hard-earned money to this God you worship. I mean, you, you do that and you'll, you'll miss out. And Nehemiah sees what's happened and he rebukes them, verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And he, he takes action. He says, then I called them together and stationed them at their posts and all Judah brought the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies. They were trustworthy. They're the sort of people you put in leadership, the sort you can trust not to lead you into compromise with the world. For us, well, Jesus says, doesn't he, that what we do with our money reveals our hearts. Think of what we used to do with our money in those early days when we were on fire for the Lord. 
when we were passionate about God's purposes, when we saw he is building his people so it was a joy to give to mission organizations, uh, to give to the ministry of the local church. You see, we give to the purposes of God because, oh, because we're living for his purposes. That's where our heart lies and all his purposes are heading to a world to come. And that meant we didn't mind going without because, see, our eyes were on eternity. And do you remember? We are his people for his glory. And what we do with our money was meant to be a signpost that pointed to him, that pointed to the fact that this, this world isn't everything. But now, what's happened? Our income has gone up, but our giving has not gone up by the same amount. You see, everyone around us, the people we are closely associated with, say, well, you've only got one life, live it. And we feel the pinch of that, and we don't want to miss out. I meet Christians who write bucket lists. They say they're they're saving up for all the fun things we want to do before we die, as though death is the end, as though Jesus never rose. As though we are not going to reign with him in the wonder of a world made new. You see, we were living by the word. But now we've caved in to the world. And we say, we say to our close associates, there is a world to come. And they look at how we spend our money. And they go, doesn't really look like you believe that. So why should we? Verses 15 to 22, the people desecrate the Sabbath. Back in chapter 10, verse 31, they they recommitted themselves to keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath was the day that marked God's people as really different. Because everyone else is working every day. If the harvest needs bringing in, you bring it in. Why? Because your life depends on it. And the people of God are doing this crazy thing. They are taking a day of rest, even in the middle of the harvest. What? They stop work. Why? Why would anyone do that? Because though work is important and good, There is more to life than work. There is God. And the world around says, of course, your life depends on your work. You've got to keep working. You've got to keep bringing in the harvest. Everything depends on it. And the people of God say, no, we can rest. Because our life doesn't depend on our work. Our lives depend on our God. He is our creator and he is our redeemer. And our lives are not in our own hands. Our lives are in his hands. What a relief that is. It's why it's such a joy to be his people because because of him we can rest. By the time Nehemiah returns, you see verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. 
and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of other loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Do you feel the hustle and bustle of men of Tyre bringing their fish and they set up their stalls and the people of God are saying, well, if they're setting up their stalls on the Sabbath, we've got to set up our stalls because we don't want to lose business. And whoa, whoa, whoa. What has happened to being different and to depending on the Lord? So again, see at the end of verse 15, Nehemiah warns them In 17, he says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? And he he takes action. Verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open till the Sabbath was over. It's brilliant. He locks the gates before the Sabbath so the traders can't come in. For us, uh, it is not time for a full discussion on uh, the relationship between Sabbath and Sundays. I'm not going to go there, but the bottom line is this. Jesus says that all the religion of the Old Testament points to him. In other words, therefore, the Sabbath day is fulfilled in him. He is the one who gives us rest. And the world around us says your life depends on your work. Not not just for food, for the table, but for your whole sense of who you are. One of my uh, all-time favorite films of all time is um, On the Waterfront. Have you seen On the Waterfront? If you've not seen On the Waterfront, you you should actually see On the Waterfront. Um, it, it stars a, a young Marlon Brando. He plays this, uh, this boxer, Terry Malloy. He's a boxer whose career comes to nothing. He's forced to throw a fight. And there is this electric scene in, in, a, in a taxi with his brother. And I don't think I can quite do the accent, but he just says, he says, he says I could have been a contender. He says, I could have been somebody. And it's heartbreaking. The way he does it is heartbreaking. <laughs> Because what he's saying is, if he had made it as a boxer, he could have been somebody. As it is, he's just a nobody. And that's what the culture around says, isn't it? You want to be somebody? Do well at work. And if you don't do that well, if you don't get to the top, you're made to feel like nobodies. And that's why we are crazy busy and we work all hours because we want to do well because we want to be somebody and the Lord our God says your life, your value does not depend on your work it depends on me and I say you are a somebody 
You are my precious child. You are loved. And you see, when you hear that, it sets you free, doesn't it? You don't have to prove yourself to anybody anymore. It means you, you can stop. You can rest. And we are the people for his glory. And our rest is meant to be a signpost. It's meant to point to the fact that our lives, our self-esteem, it doesn't all depend on the work we do. It depends on him, our creator, our redeemer. And maybe, maybe you, remember, you remember the days when you really knew the joy of that. And you remember how you used to work really hard for your exams, but you knew your future didn't depend on your exams. They're in his hands. Your future's in his hands. So everyone else was frantic, do you remember? But you were able to rest. And you took a day off. And of course you went to church on Sunday. How could you not? Or do you remember your first job when you worked hard, but you knew when to stop? And you were very aware. Everyone else had to prove themselves. You didn't need to. But now you're crazy busy. Evenings and weekends. And so sometimes you're just too busy to be with God's people. And friends, it's not just that there is lots to do. It's the culture, the world has got to you. And I need to put my hand up. It's true of pastors as much as anyone else. Too busy to be with a family. Too busy to be with my friends, just to hang out with people. Too busy to be with the Lord. And you see, it's not just that I've got lots to do. It's I, I can't stop. See, because we are working in order to try and be somebody. And we say our lives are in the hands of our creator and our redeemer. And our close associates, the world, looks at us and goes, doesn't look like it. Brothers and sisters, stop listening to the world. Listen to the words of Jesus when he says to you today, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, the deep rest of the soul, the rest that means you can stop because you don't need to prove yourself to anyone anymore. Third thing the people do is they, this is verses 23 to 30, they marry the enemy. Back in uh, chapter 10, verse 30, they had covenanted not to give their sons and daughters in marriage to the people around them, the nations around them. But by the time Nehemiah returns, verse 23, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And again, the issue is not race. This is about preserving the people of God. Do you see verse 24? Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, what is it that brought God's people back to the joy of life with him? The word of God. If the children can't speak the language of Judah, how will they read the word of God? How will they come to know him? 
And if they don't know him, what will they pass on to their children? Again, he he rebukes them. Uh, Verse 25, I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. And he reminds them, verse 26, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Remember Solomon, who's led into sin by marrying foreign wives You see, marriage is about two people coming together to serve the purposes of God. If one is not a believer, you are pulling in different directions. And it's dangerous. Even Solomon was pulled away from God. And and that is the issue for Nehemiah. God is building a people to show the world his glory. If one generation caves into the world, where does that leave the next generation? Do you see? It is the future of God's people. It is the future of the glory of God that is at stake. That's why verse 28 is such a shocker. One of the sons of Joadah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat. The grandson of the high priest is married to the daughter of Sanballat. Do you remember Sanballat? He's Tobiah's friend. He's the guy at the beginning who plotted to destroy the people of God. So Nehemiah drove him away from me. And for us, well, I need to go carefully here. But there's some things we need to say. We need to be clear that the New Testament says if we are married to an unbeliever, we are to be the best husband or wife we can be. Because who knows that by our witness, instead of their pulling us away from God, we might pull them to him. 1 Peter 3. And I take it that is our longing. If we just think, well, God is sort of my thing, it's not really their thing, Nehemiah would say, you've caved in because you've made God small. And if you are married to someone who's not a believer, there's no doubt much that will be wonderful about your marriage, but you'll know there are hard moments. Moments when you are pulling in different directions, uh, decisions about money or where to live or how much to get involved in church life. Or you'll miss out on being able to share what the Lord is teaching you. You'll miss the joy of praying together. There'll be tension about what to bring the children up to believe about the world be hard. That's why the New Testament calls us to be wise, that if we are someone who is contemplating marriage, we're called to marry a believer. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, someone who belongs to the Lord, someone with whom you can serve the purposes of God together. But of course, it is possible to be married to a Christian, but for our marriage to be more shaped by the world than the word. So we don't really pray together or open our Bible up together. Our children are more fluent in the language of Ashdod than Judah. We're not teaching them the ways of God. And it's not just in the details, but in the foundational 
principles because the world says marriage is a contract you enter into in which the other person is bound to please me. And if they don't please me, if they get sick or if they become difficult to love or they don't make me laugh anymore, the contract is cancelled. And that's why so many marriages are going under. Because we're listening to the world on this. And God says, marriage is all about pleasing him. And we think, well, that sounds grim. But it's a key to to a healthy marriage. Because what that means is if they are sick, if they are difficult to love, if they don't make me laugh anymore, I have still got a reason to love them. Because my reason is I'm not in this for myself, for me. I'm in this for him. I want to please him, you see? And out of love for him, I go on loving you. So instead of separating when things get tough, we, we stay together. And when we do that, we point to him. Because we are people for his glory. And our marriages are meant to be signposts that point the world to Christ's love for his church. That he loved us when we were not that lovable. So in our marriages, we are to love when the other person is not that lovable. He never walks away from us. So in our marriages, we never walk away. See, but how can we love like that? Oh, because he has given us his love. I'm not empty and looking to you to fill me up. He has filled me up. And out of the fullness of his love, I have the resources to go on loving you. I do. And maybe maybe you look back on the days when it, it, it was so clear in your heart. Marriage was for him. You could never imagine marrying someone who wasn't a Christian, but now your family are putting pressure on you and you're You're wobbling. Or maybe you look back on the early days of married life. It was so clear in your heart. Marriage was for him. Now it's for you. And you're not really getting what you want. And you want out. And your close associates are telling you that that sounds very wise. You owe it to yourself. But it is a move that will destroy you and destroy your children. And most of all, the glory of God is at stake. You see, we sing of the wonder of God's love to the unlovely, how good it is to be loved by him. And they see Christian marriages, signposts to his love, breaking up. And they go, so much for his love. Do you see what's happened to the people of God in the book of Nehemiah? It's all summed up. Verse 30 So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. They needed to be purified because they had become contaminated with the ways of the world. And you might think Nehemiah is being a bit of an old sourpuss, you know, this kind of hair pulling and this chasing out of town and this locking of the gates. It's because he cares. He cares about God's people. And he cares about God's glory. He cares about God's people. Back in chapter 12, there was joy. There was a joy to live by the word of God. It was life in all its fullness. And now he comes back to this mess. They've lost their joy. 
Friends, if you lost the joy you once had, could it be that it's because you've caved in to the world? And you're kind of half living for God and half living for the world and that is the most miserable place of all to be. Nehemiah's call to turn back, to set things right, to root out compromise is not a call to make you miserable. It is a call to turn back to the joy of living for him. He cares about God's people and he cares about God's glory. They were supposed to be the people who showed the world what God was like. Instead, they blended in. They're the same as everyone else. With their money, they do what everyone else does. With their time, they're crazy busy like everyone else. Their marriages breaking up like everyone else. And, and, then, and then we wonder why the world thinks God is a joke. Why the church is making so little impact. And of course, there is opposition, but so often it's because we have stopped living by his word. And we've been listening to the world. And our beliefs might be distinct on paper, but our behavior has blended in and that gives the game away. And the result is there's not much joy for us and there's not much glory for him. The writer to the Hebrews said, today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's great to look back on giddy times with the Lord. But the issue for the people of God is always not, did you once taste revival, 52 extraordinary days, but today are you living by the word of God? God's people have been more influenced by the world than the word. And so Nehemiah takes action. Stakes are very high. But what do you think will will happen? When when he goes back to Susa, how long do you think it will last? Not very long. Remember chapter 1 verse 1. We read, this is the 20th year. It's 445 BC, that puts Nehemiah, the events of Nehemiah, right at the end of the Old Testament. It's pretty much the final chapter in Old Testament history. So, what do we see? God's plan to build a people for his glory ends in a mess. All that effort all that weeping and praying and taking action, that journey from Susa, the building of the walls, all that Bible teaching, all those resolutions made. For what? And isn't that our fear? We give ourselves to the purposes of God. We reach out, we build up his church. For what? Why does Nehemiah end with chapter 13? What does it mean? Brothers and sisters, it's not that the story of God's salvation ended in failure. It's that the story of God's salvation isn't finished. 
Nehemiah could rebuild the walls, but in the end, he couldn't rebuild the people. And just like Moses couldn't, just like David couldn't, and just like Isaiah couldn't, and just like all the rest of them couldn't, but like all the rest of them, Nehemiah gets us looking on, desperately longing for the one who can rebuild the people. You see, if the story were to end at chapter 12 with everything sorted, everything great, the danger is we would think that the story of salvation, that God's plan to build his people doesn't need Jesus. Stop at chapter 12 where it's all sorted. We we will start to think we don't need Jesus. See, it's fine, they did it. And we will go home from Word Alive and we will start to think with a bit of hard work and some careful organization and a good vision statement and renewed publicity, we can do this, we can build the church of God to his glory. But here is the point of chapter 13. The point of chapter 13 is any story of salvation that stops short of Jesus will always end in a mess. See, the mess of chapter 13 gets us looking on. See, this can't be it. This cannot be the climax of salvation. There must be more. And there is. There is Jesus. Do you, catch, do you catch how Nehemiah prays? Verse 14. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. 22. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Very last line, remember me with favor, my God. And I must say, when I first read those prayers, I thought, that's a bit smug, isn't it? Remember me, I mean that lot, but remember. But Nehemiah is a godly man. He has done the right thing. He has given himself to building the people of God. What he's praying is, Lord, do not let it all come to nothing. Remember. In the Bible, the call for the Lord to remember is the call for him to remember his promises. And when the Lord remembers his promises, he doesn't just kind of recollect them, he graciously intervenes. The Lord remembers Noah in Genesis 8. He sees his plight, graciously intervenes. And you see, Nehemiah was passionate about the purposes of God, to build a people, to show the world his glory, but his efforts all end in a heap. Because he can't bring about the purposes of God. And so his prayer is, Lord, remember your promises. Don't let it all come to nothing. I couldn't do it. So please, will you? And you run the story on 400 years and you see how the Lord answers his prayer, keeps his promises. Because you see, the problem wasn't broken bricks, was it? 
it was sinful hearts. And Jeremiah says, one day the Lord will deal with sinful hearts. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Do you remember the promise in Ezekiel? Promise of the Spirit in our hearts. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus, the one who will establish that new covenant. We'll write it in his blood. And our sins will be finally forgiven. And he will send the spirit of God into our hearts and make us new on the inside. Do you see? Christianity is not a call to grit our teeth and resolve to be better. It is about the supernatural work of God in our lives. And the danger is we leave word alive and we head home and we say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder to be God's people for his glory. And it's not long before our resolve will run out of steam and we'll end up in a mess and we'll think, oh, what's the point? We can't do this. And friends, we can't do this. Any story of salvation that stops short of Jesus ends in a mess. We can't. But he can. Brothers and sisters, don't go home just resolving to try harder, to give more money away and rest more and honor God in your marriage. Go home resolving to look to him to cry out to him, to pray like you've never prayed before. Lord, we can't do it. So please, would you build your church? Would you, by the power of your spirit, help us to live by your word? Would you make us a people for your glory? And that is a prayer he will answer because that is a prayer that's in line with his promises. And we've seen how he keeps his promises, haven't we? He promised to build a people to show the world how good he is. He sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And as he sent Nehemiah, he sent his son to us. And we we see more than Nehemiah saw. Because of Jesus, we see the church that God is building across the world. We see lives transformed. We see people who are living by his word, who do give sacrificially in ways that defy human explanation, people who were so dangerously driven but have now found their identity in him and rest, whose marriages hold together through ups and downs. There is so much that we see that's now, because Jesus has come, there's even more that's not yet. And on the days ahead when, when it's hard, It's not that the plan has failed, but that he's not yet finished. And what Nehemiah couldn't finish, Jesus will. 
And one day we will be like him. And his people will reflect his ways. And his glory will fill the earth. And the world will praise him for who he is and what he has done. And on that day, don't you think we will be glad that he called us to join in with his building project? Don't you think? Let's pray. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our Father, please, would you give us eyes to look forward to that great day, to live for that great day, not in our own strength, but looking to Jesus, leaning on him, that all the glory would be his. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2018. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.